Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is child psychologist Dr. Becky Kennedy, whose new book is Good Inside. She's joined in conversation by Katie Hentz Zambrano, founder and editor of Mother Mag. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Uh, my name is Vipka Raven. I'm the Institutional Giving Director here at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Um, I'm also a mom of a two-year-old, GFK, a fellow cycle breaker, who often struggles with PNP time and finding her MGI. Yes, millennials like their acronyms. When I first held my daughter in my arms, one single thought occupied my head. All I want is for her to be happy. Fast forward two days and we're both crying on the sofa at home, one hungry, the other frantically trying to get someone, anyone, on Zoom to help her feed her newborn during a global pandemic. Forget happy. I couldn't even meet her most basic need. I dug myself a deep hole and sat in a muddy puddle of mom guilt. In a quieter moment, a few weeks later, researching all sort of parenting approaches, I came across a headline that piqued my interest. It read, Dr. Becky doesn't think the goal of parenting is to make your kid happy. Instead of striving for happy, this clinical psychologist suggested building kids' resiliency and tolerance for life's distress is a more effective way to fend off anxiety in adulthood. Instead of scrambling to find ways to turn off feelings of discomfort, frustration, anger, disappointment, we learn to dim them. I started following Dr. Becky's buzzing Instagram and eventually joined the Good Inside membership community. And hands from parents all over started reaching into that little hole I had dug for myself, pulling me out by sharing their experiences, offering words of support, and directing me towards Dr. Becky's many resources and strategies to help forge connection with my daughter and myself. When Dr. Becky announced she was publishing a book, the kind of parenting handbook I so desperately wanted to reference on day two of meeting my daughter and many days thereafter, I had to ping my colleague Stephanie Singer, who curates our Arts and Ideas series here at the J, to see if she could bring Dr. Becky and Good Insight to the JCC. And she delivered. So without further delay, please help me give a warm JCCSF welcome to Dr. Becky Kennedy and Katie Hintz Zambrano. So I just want to talk about the phenomenon that is Dr. Becky to kick it off. And like, when did this start? When did you go pop? Like, when was the big break? Yeah. So I've always felt a desire when I was in private practice. I was in private practice after getting my PhD. And I actually wasn't working with kids in play therapy at that point. I'd worked with kids in grad school but realized that I was drawn to working with their parents even more because I think therapy for kids is so important. And I just remember thinking, I'm with parents for, I mean, I'm with a kid for 45 minutes. Then they're with their parents in their home for all the other minutes. If I can even have like an iota of impact on their family environment, that to me felt really, really compelling. And then I was in private practice. I did a lot of parenting work and I was working with adults in kind of intensive psychotherapy. And I just, I, 
I had this desire to like think more, to talk to more people outside my office. And so I actually like thought of this sleep product that I kind of MacGyvered for my DFK daughter, my deeply feeling child. And it really changed her relationship with sleep. And it led me to explore this with a friend. Like, do I want to put this product out into the world? And I was telling my sister, who's a lot younger than me, she's like, well, if you're going to put out a product, you have to be on Instagram. And I was like, oh, I don't even know like, what Instagram was. But it did lead me to say, okay, well, what would I write? And then I had these weeks of just writing and writing. I was like, oh, I have a lot to say. And in those weeks, my friend and I realized the ideas behind the product were way more interesting and compelling and at the core than the product. And so we kind of put the product on hold, and I just had all this writing. And I was like, well, now I don't know what to do with it. And... My husband truly was just like, well, it lives on your computer. You put it out on Instagram. And then I put out my first post, which is, the timing is, is, is nuts, on February 28th, 2020, which was two weeks before New York City, where I live, shut down. And then two weeks after, I put out this post about how our kids will remember more about how coronavirus would feel, that time would feel in their family homes than anything about the virus itself. And a whole post about how to wire your kids for resilience in a time of uncertainty. And then things just took off from there. Yeah, that's amazing. And then why a book now? And why this book? Yeah, it's a great question. Because if you follow me on Instagram or listen to the podcast, you probably know like we put out a lot of content. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff out there. And so pretty early in my Instagram journey, book agents and publishers were reaching out to me saying, like, you seem to have a lot to say. I think you have a book in you. But, but honestly, for, for six months or maybe more, I was like, I actually don't, I don't feel like I have a book in me. Like, I was just, like, really experimenting with ideas in this forum. And I felt like that was fulfilling my, you know, writing and exploration desires. And then toward the end of 2020, something really interesting happened. I was like, wow, all of my posts, like the way I think about Instagram or even a podcast is like, it's an idea here. It's an idea here. It's just like little things here and there. And I was like, wait, there's actually like a foundation to all of them. And there's like a much larger story I'd want to tell about kids and parents and relationships. And the only way I could actually express that whole arc would be in a book. Instagram just doesn't allow for that. And so then I was like, I, I have a book in me. And then the, the writing began. And that's really what this book is. Like, it's not a collection of Instagram posts at all. It's really something, it's something totally different. Yeah, I love it. I've read almost all of it now. And I have a nine-year-old, so I was like, this isn't going to apply to me. I have, you know, I'm not, I don't have a young kid, but it totally does. And I like that ageless approach that you have to it. I think it's great. Um, and with that in mind, like a lot of people, you probably already know what you feel like Dr. Becky's main philosophy is, but I'd love to hear from, you know, yourself, how would you boil it down and how's it different from other maybe connection first uh, philosophies that are kind of floating around there? Yeah. So, Good inside, like it's two words, it's like 10 letters, it's a really, it's in some ways a simple phrase, but to me it actually is like a really revolutionary way of seeing people, right? And in some ways like definitely seeing kids. So I was trained, like when I realized I wanted to do more parenting work, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the best center, like I want to get the best education. And so I went to this highly credentialed Ivy League, you know, best in class parenting center and learned all about timeouts, punishments, sticker charts, praise, ignoring. And honestly, 
definitely during the program and even for a couple of weeks, maybe months after, I, I loved it. I was like, this is amazing, you know, because when we hear that stuff, those approaches, and you hear, okay, well, when your kid does something bad, you have to kind of extinguish the behavior and then you get more of the good and less of the bad. Like the, the, the logical parts of our brain just light up because that part of our brain, it loves logic and linearity and your brain's like, that makes sense. Okay, I'm going to do that. And nobody in that program and nobody with those kind of behavior first approaches ever say, you know, inherent to our approach is the belief that kids are bad inside. Like nobody says that. But I firmly believe that control and trust are opposites. And if you ever wonder why it feels so bad when someone's controlling you or like rushing you or looking over you, it's because it feels like they're saying to you, like, I don't trust you. And being not trusted is an awful human feeling because it almost feels like it's like, I don't trust that you're a good person, <laughs> right? So imagine a boss who's sitting at comes up to your desk and is like, I need you to redo this report. You know, you mess this all up. You need to do these things. I'm standing over. I'm watching you. You better go, right? Versus, hey, these things, you know, these things all have to be changed and here's my notes and I'm going to leave your office. I trust you to do a good job. It's like a polar opposite reaction. And so one of the things I realized with these other approaches, so I was like, well, no matter what, when I'm giving my kid a punishment, when I'm sending them away to a timeout in the moment they need me the most, my kid's not going to remember those instances, right? We all know, like, we remember how people make us feel, not what they say and not what they do. And the message to my kid in those moments is, like, I don't trust you. You're, you're bad. I would only send you away. Also, I'd only have to give you stickers for being nice to someone if I felt like I also didn't trust you. Like, there's such coercion there. And I was like, wow, so kids, like generations of kids are being raised feeling not good enough, feeling bad inside, which I think generations of kids have been raised. And then it got me thinking on the other side. There's like, okay, there's the other philosophy, like feelings and validation. And I'm a big feelings validation fan, but feelings and validation without really firm boundaries is also not a complete parenting philosophy because kids need to see their feelings as real. But kids also need adults to act like adults and keep them safe physically and emotionally, right? Like a kid who's hitting a sibling, they don't just need, you're so mad, I get it. They need me to come in, say, I won't let you hit, remove them from their sibling, not only to protect the kid they're hitting, they need it to protect themselves from watching themselves feel like a monster. Like they need firm boundaries. And I, I just kept feeling like there's only two options in the field. Like there's this bad kid punish and shape their behavior through sticker charts and timeouts, or there's the like feelings matter, but then kids feel totally out of control and there has to be something beyond those two buckets. Mm -hmm. And that's what really led to this. Yeah, I love that. Um, early on in the book, you talk about, quote, building a community of cycle breakers and forever learners. And I really loved that quote. And I don't know if past generations, if intrinsically every new generation of parenting is trying to break the cycle of the, what they were taught, um, but definitely today. And I think in this room, you know, this is the era of so-called intensive parenting, right? So we're really conscious of everything we're doing and... I don't know if that, if that is unique to this generation that we're really trying to be cycle breakers, but how um, passionate are you about that? And I think that I can see that being a big part of your, you know, changing the world almost philosophy. Yeah, well, I think this is, 
like, you know, the, I don't want to even guard the secret. I hope the secret gets out, but that like, this isn't only like a parenting approach. I think and there's something in like these moments with our kids when we're able to set a boundary and say some version of, I'm not going to let you hit your sister. I'm sitting with you here. You're a good kid having a hard time. I don't know any parent who says that, who doesn't feel something internally at the same time around like, I like so needed to hear that from someone. I never heard that. And we probably don't remember exactly what our parents said, but our body remembers from those glances, from the dart eyes, from the what is wrong with you. Our body remembers being looked at as a monster. Like we remember that. There's a really powerful phrase I think about. It's not mine. I cry whenever I think about it for kids' development. It's I am as I am seen. I am as I am seen. I actually think the same is true for us in our worst moments. <laughs> and kids especially, they develop through the gaze they get from parents. Our kids respond to the versions of themselves we reflect back. And so how we look at our kids, which again doesn't mean we're, we can get so black and white. People are like, oh, so they're a good kid, so you let them throw blocks? Like, no. <laughs> like, I'm not going to let them throw blocks, actually because they are a good kid. So I'm going to stop them from acting in a way where they feel out of control. But I can still show them, and I think this is key to the approach, that I can differentiate who they are from what they did, right? And, and we'll get to the pad you all got later, but the, the, a version of this can be used for our kid. Like right now, think about something that you're really frustrated with about your kid, a behavior they have that's really frustrating. Raise your hand if you have a behavior in mind for your kid, if you have something that they're doing that's really frustrating. Aww. Nobody and if you don't, get out of this auditorium <laughs> um, or tell us your secrets. No, of course we do because they're human beings. Kids come into the world with every feeling, with the intensity we have them and none of the skills. It's just an inconvenient truth. They have all the feelings and no skills. So feelings that don't have skills come out in behavior for kids and adults. So if you think about that behavior right now, so maybe it's my kid saying, I hate you to me or my kid's lying. Watch for how, even in our mind, the behavior collapses into identity. It feels like I have a bad kid, or I have a kid who's like a sociopath. They don't even care. They lie to my face. Versus, right? We're laughing because we're like, yeah, it's amazing when my kid's lying to me, how I'm like predicting them being a sociopath, right? Like, we've all done that. And then we respond to our kid today, not based on the fact that they're struggling with something, but like to try to prevent them from being a mass murderer later on, right? But then what our kid feels is they're like, why is my parent looking at me like I'm a sociopath? That doesn't feel good. So the difference between that and I have a good kid who's lying. I have a good kid who's in a I hate you phase. I have a good kid who's hitting it completely changes our framework. And in the group before this, we were talking about how actually the most powerful thing of all is to get a framework shift, right? As soon as we shift our framework, we feel unstuck. Then we can incorporate new strategies, right? It's totally different. And finally, returning to your brilliant question that I didn't answer yet, um, the truth is we have trouble shifting our framework. We have trouble seeing a good kid under our kid's behavior because so rarely we were seen as a good person under our behavior. And so then our body, 
Our mind doesn't react. This is why logic and any therapy that's just based on cognition is personally not a therapy or a parenting approach I think is particularly effective because our body beats our brain every time. We feel before we think. We're animals. And this area, our circuitry, what we learned to survive, always beats our brain. Thank goodness, right? If, if you went outside and you were like, I think it's safe to cross the street and a car came, guess what? Your body would put you back on the sidewalk, right? Like you're not, oh, is that car going to hurt me? Like that would be logic. Thank goodness it doesn't take over. And so actually I think, and I think there's a lot of this in the book, frankly, it would be a different book. It would be a combination of reparenting triggers, like those other topics. Like, yes, if we're continually showing up with our kids and thinking like, why am I not thinking of the thing? Why am I reacting? Why am I triggered? I've, I've been practicing the strategy. Why do I do something totally different in the moment? It's, it's a reparenting journey we need, right? And I think anybody in our membership will be like, yeah, the reparenting and triggers workshops did more to help me use the strategies I want to use with my kid than any time I tried to memorize the strategies again, because that changed my body, right? And that's not our fault. It doesn't mean we're bad people at all. It means our circuitry is like asking <laughs> to be rewired, not only to show up differently for our kids, but really also just to feel more healed and more sturdy ourselves. Yeah. One thing that I'm sure you read all the headlines and you also have, um, you still have people coming to you and saying their problems every day. I don't know if anxiety and depression in children has been something that you've personally seen. I definitely read so many headlines and so many studies about this and it's so grim and so sad and there's so much going on in our world and uh, you know the onslaught of social media and the news. And so of course our children are anxious and they're getting anxious and depressed earlier than ever before. What, like with your philosophy, does that help address some of this and try to like, you know, create this, um, yeah, safety or whatever with the parents that can help it from, you know, starting in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Such an important question. It's true. And, and in a good way, I think the media has brought attention to this, mm-hmm. like, you know, especially teenagers and young kids are having a really hard time. Mm-hmm. Right. So a couple things. So our kids are growing up, as we know, in like a completely different world than we grew up, right? And I know our parents probably said the same thing, but I think there's like a, a much bigger shift. So a couple things. Our kids are brought up in a world where there is constant ability to gratify their like every demand, right? To some degree, learning to cope with frustration is like the single most important thing, I think, in childhood. It's like, we're all frustrated as adults, right? I always think like, I don't know any adult who ever came to my private practice and was like, my parents were so amazing. They got frustration and jealousy and disappointment out of my body. Like I I just, I never felt it again, but I know a lot of adults who they don't say this, but their stories tell it. Like I basically have the same coping skills for frustration and disappointment and jealousy at age 45 as I did when I was two. Like I, I never learned coping skills. And I think it's really easy actually now to not have our kids learn those skills because there's like an ease to parts of their life, right? I'm thinking like if I wanted a, a new toy and even my mom, let's say she was going to get me a toy, okay? When I was five, all of us, there's a process. They'd be like, well, when can we get to the store? You go to the store and you're like, they don't have it. Okay, we're going to order it. Just think about the difference in your body versus what happens when you're like, "Mm," 
And then like it's there, maybe in two hours, maybe the next day. And that's one tiny moment. That's one moment. You're listening to child psychologist, Dr. Becky Kennedy, whose new book is Good Inside. She's joined in conversation by Katie Hentz Zambrano on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. One of the ways I think about anxiety is I actually don't think anxiety is a feeling itself. I think it's a reaction to a feeling. I think it's the experience of not wanting to feel the way you're feeling. It's like running away from a feeling in your body. And our world is a little bit set up to help kids run away from frustration. And I, and I should add, if there's means, it's, it's really set up for that. Because money can buy kids way out of frustration in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Right? Oh, they're, you know, they're out of this. We're going to get this. You weren't invited to this party. We'll throw you another party. You didn't make this soccer team. We'll drive you to the other town or someone will and get on that soccer team. And what a kid's body really learns is this feeling of maybe sadness or frustration in me. Like my parent couldn't tolerate it in me. My parent kind of ran circles to do anything to turn this feeling off. Now let's fast forward to teenage years. A kid feels down. A kid was left out. As we get older, it's harder and harder to think, find things in our world to just make it better. I think we all know that. We all lived that in the pandemic. We're like, wow, all I can do is just cope with this. That's it. And if a kid's early years, really, we're all about getting out of frustration, getting out of disappointment then a kid never had the opportunity to learn tolerance for any of those skills. So when you think about the setup for anxiety, anytime those things come up, the body's like, what? Where's, where's, where's the solution? Where's happy? Where is it? What can I do? Where, where do I get it better? And then they're paralyzed. Of course they are. Because their body not only didn't learn the skills, but they internalized their parents' fear of that. Right? Our kids can only learn to tolerate feelings we tolerate in them. Hard stop. Hard stop. And kids know when we can't tolerate, right? So, of course, there's a moment to say, oh, my kid didn't make the soccer team. Can I not have them do another soccer team? Of course we can. But there's a difference in the speed of that versus my first reaction being like, that stinks. Are you going to take me? Can we make another team? You know what? Not right now. We're not going to talk about another team. You wanted to make that team, and you didn't. <laughs> like, that's really hard. That's real. I believe you. Those moments are the essence of resilience building and lower a kid's vulnerability to anxiety because that's one additional feeling they don't have to run away from in their body. Right? I think another big idea, and then I know it's a long answer, is feelings don't give kids problems. Feeling alone in feelings gives kids problems. Same thing for adults. And we can't take away a feeling, or if we do, we see that what would happen, but we can actually only take, we can take away the aloneness by being present. So there's also an irony there. My kid's upset about something, and when I run to take them into a different feeling, not only do they not build coping skills, they actually have aloneness, because the next time they have that feeling, they imagine me not in the feeling, but taking them away. So there's like a huge paradox here. I really do believe that we have this opportunity in our kids to 
to intercede with this pattern that seems to be happening with these like kids who are really, really anxious and feeling really, really empty. Right? Well, emptiness is, if you think about that, it's like if there's a whole range of feelings you can't feel in your body, that is the experience of emptiness. As soon as a feeling comes, you have to run away from it. Every time we take that moment to just say to our kid, I'm so glad we're talking about this. This is so important. Yeah, you really feel that way. I believe you. You're allowed to feel that way. What I'm really saying to my kid is I'm less afraid of your emotional reality than you are. I am less afraid. I see it. It's real. And I'm less afraid of it than you are. And we're in it together because I'm willing to talk to you about it. Because I'm willing to sit, as I call on this emotional bench that you're on. And that, I really think, is like the biggest gift for kids. Because that prepares them to be adults who still, of course, will have hard feelings, but their wiring will lead to them being able to cope with the widest range rather than have to run away from a pretty wide range. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. Um, I know one of your favorite chapters is Tell the Truth in the book. Um, what, what number of chapters out of people? I think it's nine. Nine, okay. Nine. Um, but yeah, so tell me about that concept and why that's so... I think it's really important, I was saying, for parents and parents everywhere, but especially yeah. kids that are seen a lot, especially in like urban settings and stuff. So yeah, the first 10 chapters are these like principal chapters, right? And I think as you read them, you'll hopefully also see like, wow, this is as applicable to me or my parents or my partnership. They're, they're really just human relationships, right? And the tell the truth chapter like kind of made me laugh as I was writing it. I was like, this doesn't seem like very profound, like tell the truth. Okay. I don't know a lot of parents who are like, I want to lie to my kid's face. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, no one, no one wants to operate that way. And I was on a podcast with Glennon Doyle, which was a huge treat, and she said it best when we were talking about this idea. She was like, wow, like gaslighting has become an appropriate, acceptable parenting strategy. Like, we gaslight our kids often. So what is tell the truth? Why does it matter? And what would that look like in practice? So our kids are more perceptive to their environment, more sensing of their environment than we are as adults. Because they have to be. Because if you think about evolution, right, which is what drives us all, we're animals, we are helpless as a species for so many years, right? Think about the age at which you would feel pretty confident that your kid could survive on their own. It's a long time, right? A really disturbingly unfortunate long time, right? So for the first number of years, everything about their wiring and everything about they, that they take in from the world is really based in this helplessness that they feel. So how do you survive if you're a helpless animal? Well, you better notice everything around you in case it's a threat and then go find an adult who could keep you safe. So you become extra hypervigilant. And yet there's this narrative about young kids. They're too young to talk about that. There's no way they notice that. Whatever the that is, I promise you, your kids have noticed. Like, I don't even know what it is in your head. If you are thinking about it, the fight we had with our partner when we were screaming and our kid was upstairs, they heard it. I've seen my kid's reaction when I yelled at my husband to take out the trash. We all know that doesn't even count as a fight. That's just a day-to-day interaction, okay? (laughs) Like, and I saw my kid's body freeze. I saw it. And then I think if we're screaming at each other, and my kids upstairs watching TV that my kid wouldn't have noticed the single threat to their family system, which is their parents arguing. Now, to be clear, this actually isn't a 
at all meant to say you can't argue like that. We all know we don't want to argue like that. Hopefully we're working on it. The point is when we assume our kids don't know or don't notice, we don't tell them the truth. And then they're left alone with all the things they perceive and sensed without an adult to tell a story to them and explain things to them. Versus, hey, you were watching TV and me and your dad were really yelling at each other pretty loud. I want to let you know that I'm guessing you heard that. I probably felt really scary. You can always come to me. If you notice that, we can talk about it. It's never your fault when I yell. We're safe as a family, and we're going to be working on talking to each other more respectfully. Life-changing. Because let's say the kid notices that, which, again, for all these reasons, I think they do, and we don't talk to them. What does the kid do then? Well, they probably wire this in their body. I guess I was wrong to notice that. No, that couldn't have happened. And what does that look like? Not one time, of course, but let's say this is a pattern of kind of assuming our kids don't notice. We wonder why so many teenagers were like, how did you not know that party was like such a bad idea? You saw it going south. Why didn't you leave? Well, I don't think kids say this, but they're like, well, you pretty much encouraged me to tune out dangerous and uncomfortable things around me for a lot of my years. So I've become pretty good at telling myself this probably isn't a big deal. I'm making a big deal out of nothing. We do that. Like, it's really profound, I think, how we can train our kids to tune out the world around them, right? And we were talking about this. You walk by someone who, you know, is an unhoused person, and your kid's like, what's going on? We're like, shh, don't talk about that, Mm -hmm. right? Or our kids ask a question about race. We don't talk about that. A kid doesn't learn that I should talk about that with my parent after. If we don't follow up or we don't say something different, they learn, I was wrong to notice that. I shouldn't notice that. These are bad things to talk about. And the next time I notice something that's a little uncertain, I I definitely shouldn't go to a parent about it. I'm kind of bad. I'm wrong to, to bring such a thing up. Right? And so race, socioeconomic status, fighting, um, death, right? Death is one of these things. I, I'll never forget this family who came to see me when their kid had sudden sleeping problems, which can come from so many issues, right? And finally, I kind of like asked a lot of questions, and they're like, well, yeah, her grandfather died. She was three. And I was like, what did you tell her? And they're like, what do you mean, what did we tell her? I was like, well, what did you tell her? And they were like, we said he went to sleep for a long time. We haven't seen him since, <laughs> literally. And, and then you saw it was the father. He's like, wait a second, you know? And I'm like, yeah, like we, you know, and then we were like, you know, it wasn't like it immediately remitted. But even if it wasn't a sleep issue, we think our kid doesn't notice that we're saying the word funeral over and over when they've never heard that word. We think our kid doesn't notice that we're crying to a friend. Our kid notices when we skip one word in a book. We know that, we know that. We think a kid doesn't know we're pregnant when their eyesight is at your belly. That's literally the way they perceive your body. Right. And then people are like, they are playing with a lot of babies all of a sudden, but I don't think they know. I'm like, of course they know. They don't know it in the same way, but there's a huge cost to thinking that kids, number one, don't notice. And number two, aren't ready. They're ready. Information doesn't scare kids. Being alone in the absence of information terrifies kids. It's literally being alone in the dark. And as soon as you say, hey, I think you've been hearing this word funeral. Grandpa died. Do you know what that word means? Die, death. You know, I'd wait. They probably won't say anything. Death is when the body stops working. 
death does not mean you go to sleep forever. Death does not mean you're in the sky, right? Like, we have to, like, tell our kids what these things mean, right? How does the baby get in the belly? How does it get in? How does it get in? If you want your teenagers to talk to you about the tricky things in their life, then we have to think the wiring for that doesn't start when they're 14. It starts when they're curious about things early and are confused early and whether their body remembers my parent was able to connect to me about this or actually my parent left me with my curiosity and also maybe made me feel kind of bad or ashamed for that curiosity, not intentionally, right? So I think that chapter, it really is one of my favorites because it's so simple. It's like, yeah, tell the truth. But there's so many ways. And again, none of this is our fault. My guess is whatever topics you find tricky to talk about with your kids honestly, without a doubt, I know are the topics no adult talk to you about honestly. So even thinking about talking about sex or death or how babies are made is a cycle-breaking moment. So of course that feels awkward. It feels super awkward, right? But this is a room of cycle-breakers, right? And we have such power to do something so different when we think that our kids are ready and when they need our presence through truthful information. Love that. Chapter nine. Chapter nine. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a couple questions about like your own childhood and like we're what going was there. That? We're Are going we ready there for at, that? at the very end, and then it's like questions. No. Um, no, I thought yeah, we should go there a little bit. But I wanted I because I think it's something that I don't know if you always have talked about it yet. But like, how big was your family? Where did you grow up? Yeah. And like, what kind of parenting habits, if you weren't a cycle breaker, would you just like inherit, or what do you remember about? Yeah. The parenting that you received. No. So I'm one of three. I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. My sister is five and a half years younger. So I'm told from the literature, I'm not a true middle child because I had that space early on, but I am a middle. Um, And I grew up with a mom and a dad who are married. And I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, a very privileged, um, relatively homogeneous and kind of place to grow up. Um, You know, my childhood was interesting from a parenting perspective for a a lot of ways. I mean, yes, I would consider myself a cycle breaker, though I think the degree of cycle breaking in terms of like zero to 180, any of us want to do, it's always hard, but certainly the greater the degree, the harder. And there's definitely a lot from my parents that I want to take in. My mom was a very, like, all the emotions are allowed. Like, all the emotions, my emotions were definitely seen as real and valid, definitely seen for feelings under behaviors. I I was. My dad was much more of the, like, logical linearity, you know, but frankly, he he also was working a lot more, so I think I had a lot more time with with my mom, who was a stay-at-home mom. A couple things stand out from my childhood that I think about a lot is infused into here and infused into how I want to do things differently with my own kids too. Number one, I feel like my mom was an example of like all the feelings were allowed, but boundaries were really hard for her, right? And so she was like always available. And that sounds amazing, but in some ways, like I feel like a lot of my early adulthood was really reworking like, oh, like the people around you in adulthood who love you, like they're not always available, they're not always attuned to your needs. Like, they're not always dropping what they do to bring you a bagel at, you know, middle school because you forgot it. They're like, oh, you forgot a bagel? Like, get lunch at the cafeteria. You know, like, that's not, uh, that's not rude. It's just that boundaries involve a prioritization of yourself, which means you're not always available for others. 
The other thing that I reflect on a lot is anger in my family was like definitely not allowed. There was this narrative of like your mom does so much and like how could you be mad at her um, for anything? And I think that's informed a lot, right? When definitely informs like a two things are true perspective. Like, wait, like we can be mad at people we love. We can be grateful that people did some things for us and also, you know, angry about other things. Um, and then the other thing that really sticks out, I think, from, from my early years um, was, it really goes into that resilience over happiness, was this like fixing, was this like there was an ability to like fix and, and I feel like that made my adult years like so much harder <laughs> because you can't always fix things. Like you can't always make something better. And, and I really, really do believe that like we find ourselves in our hardest times. Like you just kind of like get through it and there's such strength that comes from that. Um, and I think there was this way in my childhood where I wasn't allowed to like be upset for too long. Like I was seen for being upset, but then I was like, okay, here's this thing and here's what we can do. And I think the thing that, how that all kind of really comes together and good inside and so many other areas, is like, I just feel like there's this new way to think about parenthood, right? And there's a lot of women in here, right? And I think there's an extra gendered lens that like so many of us were raised, I'm curious, I'm gonna raise my hand, talk about my childhood. How many of you were raised to be kind of like a, you were a good girl, whatever that meant. Yeah, wow, that's a, amazing. So I was too. And as I've rethought this, I was like, that's like a tricky term, good girl. It sounds very, I mean, now that I think about it, it feels like a little creepy, you know? Like, oh. But I feel like good girls are kids, or good boy, good kid, who are kind of trained early on to be more oriented to what others want of them than what they want for themselves, period. That's what it means. And we're praised a lot as parents if we have kids like this because like compliance in children and kids who don't have their own needs and just kind of like blindly go along with the crowd in a way, like it's like, wow, what did you do? You're such an amazing parent, right? And, and then again, we have this binary where it's like, if it's not that, you're a bad kid. And so... Like the way that even all comes to good inside, I'm like, there has to be a way where you can love a parent or love someone and be mad at them. There has to be a way where you can be attuned to your own needs and still be a good person. Like there has to be a way to hold these things together. And I feel like we've been given these models that are like really like in a box. And like our heart just knows that it's like not it. Like we know, like I feel very limited by this. Like this can't be the way. And I think beyond any strategy or approach, this idea that, especially as moms, that like we can't pour ourselves out forever. Like all of you are here. You did something to set a boundary to come here. This whole like motherhood is martyrdom. I don't need anything. I'm here to serve everyone else. Like I, I really feel like we're the generation to be like, no, nope, not anymore. Like we don't have to, we're not. And we have access to a community of other people who are like fighting that fight too, to give something different to ourselves and then give something really different to our kids. Right, right before this, right before my book tour, my oldest son said to me, I see my friends in the crowd, I was telling this last night. He literally goes, he goes, mom, and he's almost 11. He goes, I know you're happy about like this thing you're doing. <laughs> like that. And he goes, but... 
I just want to let you know, I really liked it better when you worked two days a week. <laughs> and I think like everything about Good Inside actually came together in that moment in a way. Because I don't need my son's approval for the decisions I'm making. And that comment is not a barometer of how good of a person or parent I am. And because I feel so fulfilled by this, because I feel confident that this is important, I actually can see his feelings as his feelings, as something I can empathize with, not as something, I'm not centering myself, right? When we go into, whether it's I hate you or that, like, oh, you don't respect me, it's amazing. It's like, it's so centering of ourselves and someone else's experience. Like, I think you're saying that to me because you don't respect me. It's like a pretty big leap versus... Yeah, of course you would. You wanted me to work two days a week. Like, I get that. You're going to miss me when I'm gone. And you wish I could be home every day when you get home from school. But I feel like that's, that's the fight of like, yeah, my whole existence isn't to show up only in the way you want me to show up. And that feels like a, a pretty big shift from my early years. And that definitely feels like a really big shift from the narrative we're told about who like good mothers are. And it's a shift I could not be more excited to be making with all of you. Yeah, very, that's amazing. Uh. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is child psychologist, Dr. Becky Kennedy, whose new book is Good Inside. She's joined in conversation by Katie Hintz-Zambrano, founder and editor of Mother Mag. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Yeah, last question is just, you know, if somebody couldn't finish the whole book or if they just want a quick, uh, or they want to buy it for a friend or whatever, um, what, what's like one big lesson that you feel like you would really love people to take away from this book? Okay, I love ending with that. And like when people ask me a one thing question, I'm really, That's really hard. bad yeah. student like that. Cause I'm always like, I can't be boxed into a corner, but, um, but this one I can, and I will, cause there truly is one. And it's like the importance of repair and the importance of the idea that it's not too late. There is no strategy more important for parents to get good at than repair. And if you only read one section, read it's the it's not too late chapter for sure. And if you really think about that, if you're like, okay, if Dr. Becky's like, I have to get really good at repair then she's telling me I like, kind of have to keep yelling at my kids. Because like, <laughs> I'm going to need the... Pra- the only way I can repair is if there's a rupture, right? But that is what I'm telling you. Raise your hand if you yell at your kids sometimes. Okay, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you've said words coming out of your mouth that you're like, I do not want to be a parent who's saying these words to my kid. Like, and, and those in the front, like, keep your hands up if that's true for you. Look, look back and just like... Like, really, this is so important. Like, we are shown these Instagram pictures. We, we take babies home from the hospital and are only told how to buckle them into the car seat. Like, that's really true. There is no job in the world that's as hard and important and ongoing as parenting. And there's no job that gets as little support and resources and realistic expectations as parenting. And then many of us, when things are hard, we take it in as our fault 
when it's not our fault. When things are hard, it's often a sign of the resources and support we need and deserve and aren't getting. And so how does that all relate to repair? Well, parenting is just hard, right? Parenting is hard. We've all established, we all yell at our kids. We've all said things, it's true. So what happens after that? What happens after I've called my kid a spoiled brat? What happens after I scream so loud that it even scares me after? Well, let's walk through this. My kid is now in their room and I'm in somewhere else in my house, let's say, we're separated. And we'll often think as parents, especially if time goes on, like, well, they didn't bring it up, like it seems fine now, okay. The body doesn't lie. The body is our storer of memories, which we want it to. Again, we perceive things. So my kid stores the fact that I yelled at him. Now, again, watch the guilt, but remember, wait, we've all done it. This is just a universal experience. So now my kid has this experience of having been yelled at. Kids, when they're alone in distress, again, the aloneness is the problem, not the distress. When they're alone in distress, they literally have two coping skills at their disposal and two only. Self-doubt, as we've established here. Am I making too big of a deal out of this? Did this really happen? And if we wonder why so many adults don't trust themselves, that's that legacy that lives on. Or self-blame. I'm a bad kid and I did this. I'm too much. I'm too much. And if I was only better, this wouldn't have happened because it is always safer for a kid to take on control and badness and preserve their parents as good than to feel good and feel like the world around them and their parents who they need are bad. It's literally non-conducive with survival, so they take it on. And if we want to know why so many adults, when things are hard, go into, what's wrong with me? I'm not enough. I'm too much. No one else but me would do something like this. I'm such a bad person. I'm a monster. That also is the way we've wired in our body when we were alone in distress. That self-blaming kind of tendency. Okay, so those are their only two options, but something much more hopeful. What happens when I go to their room? Even if it's, hey, I want to talk about something that happened last week, okay? If I go to their room, imagine this. I literally go into like the book of their life and I reopen it. I take it off the shelf and I'm like, hey, let's go back to that chapter. That chapter ended in feelings that didn't feel good for either of us as we've established. I have such an amazing opportunity I can literally rewrite the ending of that chapter by adding all of the elements that were missing in the first place, by adding connection and compassion and understanding. I'm so sorry I yelled. It's never your fault when I yell at you. And you might be thinking, but they were being really slow getting ready for school. We don't yell at our kids because what they're doing. We yell at our kids because we're having trouble tolerating the feelings in our body when we see what they're doing. That's a completely different situation. Nobody likes when their kids are whining or stalling, but it is possible to be less reactive. So we name it, we take responsibility, and we say some version of, I know that was scary. You were right to feel that way. That undoes the lack of self-trust, and I'm working on it. I've literally changed the way that memory will live in my kid's body. Because instead of it living with the self-doubt and the fear and the self-blame, I've encapsulated it. It's like, it's so powerful. I've encapsulated it. I don't know how many of you have been in personal therapy, but there's a lot of people who think therapy is really the process of changing memories. That's literally what therapy does. We don't change events, but by talking about them and understanding and having new frameworks and having someone in that moment with us, in the storytelling, we change how it lives in our body and that changes how it lives out in our present. I think anyone who's been in, in like that type of therapy is like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. That's what repair does with our kids.
And as the last event before, the last thing I want to do is I want to do a little exercise because I always feel like our bodies hold so much data and information. It's one of the things that led me to say, there's no way this time out approach is right. I was like, it just feels wrong. And like, I know there's studies, but I also trust the thing in my body that's like, this feels awful. So parents often say to me, okay, but Becky, you don't understand. My kid is 18 now, or my kid is 40, or this thing happened four weeks ago. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to imagine your parent, your actual parent, calling you up right after this event. And if neither of your parents are alive, imagine after this event, you find like a letter they wrote you. And they call you up and they say something like this. Hey, I just wanted to tell you, I've been thinking about a lot of the things in your early years. And I think there were a lot of things I did that felt really bad to you. And I never said that to you. And you, you were right that those felt bad. And I never was there to try to understand you. And that stuff wasn't your fault. It was never your fault. And if you ever want to talk to me about any of the specifics, I won't refute them. I'll, I'll listen. I love you. I don't know one adult who wouldn't be like, wow, that would be like pretty profound, actually. Like it wouldn't do a 180 maybe on everything, but like that would, like my body even feels that imagery. Like I feel that. And if you think about the data that that gives you, it's literally in my mind proof. Wait, if that would be meaningful to me with my parents, I, like, I know my kids are younger than me. So like, it's really like proof that it's never too late with my kids because that would still be a really meaningful experience to me. And so I love the idea after I've been doing some live events. I was like, how cool if after these live events, every single person, everyone is like, I'm going to make a repair with someone in my life. Maybe it's my kid. Maybe it's my partner. I'm going to do some version of like, hey, I want to talk to you about this thing that happened that I still remember, and it wasn't your fault, and I'm here for you. Like, that would, that would have a huge impact. And so that's what I'm going to do after this, too. <laughs> and I think there'd be a power we felt like in the world, I really do, if, if we all do some version of that after. So that's the most important parenting strategy of all. Thank you, Dr. Becky, and thank you for that. Do you have a question? Hi. How would you advise parents who have lots of little kids close in age together, and sometimes it feels so hard? I was there a couple years ago, but yeah. when it feels so hard to use those good inside strategies because you're just putting yep. out your own fires and putting out theirs. So I think the fire metaphor is a good one to continue with. So as parents, like there's two buckets of strategies we need. Okay. One is what I call fire containment, fire containment strategies. The other one are firefighting strategies. If you had a fire in your home, like a literal fire and you didn't have an extinguisher because in the metaphor, we don't want to extinguish feelings. We really don't because the kids lose access to information and who they are. So there's no extinguisher, but you'd, if you had a fire, you'd contain the fire, right? You'd like figure out how to stay safe and contain it. Now, if you wanted your house to be less vulnerable next time, once the fire was contained, hopefully you'd do some fireproofing around your house. You'd be like, oh, we have to clean this whatever off our stove, whatever it was. And if you didn't do that, 
It doesn't mean you're a bad person, but I think anyone would know your house would be just as vulnerable to the fire the next time the conditions were the same. But also, you don't want to do that during the fire. Like, if during the fire you're fireproofing your house, a friend would be like, wrong order of operations, right? It's really powerful to think about both the stage of parenthood we're in and our kids' struggles in this way. Kids' struggles, what do I do when my kid's having a massive tantrum? That's fire containment. After, what led to that? What conditions were there? What skills were they missing? If I don't actually literally spend time doing that with my kid, doesn't mean I'm a bad person at all, at all. But it also doesn't mean my kids has, like, why wouldn't they just do the same thing the next time, right? Two different buckets. Same thing with stage of parenting. Like when our kids are just young or the baby phase or there's a lot of them and maybe also work is stressful or I just lost my job or I'm in a bad place with my partner. There is something to say to yourself, like, I'm in like a containment mode. Like I'm kind of in survival mode. All these other things, like, I trust I'm going to get there. And part of what I do need to think about is what do I need to carve out a little bit more space in my life for the things that like not only make me survive, but like give me a sense of purpose and impact and excitement. Okay. But also like I'm probably surviving this time. Right? I think another version of this question is like, okay, I have one kid who's tantruming here, another one who's hitting, and another one who's like peeing all over our carpet. What would you do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, what? I have no idea. What would you do? You just like hope the moment ends. Like, that's honestly what I would do. You know, like there's no, there's, and if there's somebody who tells you like an amazing strategy, I hope you're like, I wouldn't try to be like, unless you're a magician, you know, the best thing you could do is tell the truth. In that moment, I would hope to have the composure to say to my kids, there's three kids who need me and there's one of me. You need a mommy, you need a mommy, you need a mommy. I'd be like, I need a mommy, right? Like <laughs> there needs to be four mommies and there's one. And so something I say to my kids for us sometimes is nothing's gonna feel good right now and we're just gonna get through it. And when you have that, whatever it is, that baby and that 18 month old and that two and a half year old, I think the best thing you can do is remind yourself, this feels hard because it is hard, not because I'm doing something wrong. This feels hard because it is hard. Again, there's such a like simplicity to that. It's amazing what we do as humans. I have three kids, they're so young. And then we're like, what's wrong with me? I'm like, <laughs> it's like the answer is like, have you seen this situation? And again, it goes to how poorly we're prepared. Nobody talks about what parenting really is. And we're given these movies and you're given these narratives and you're seeing these pictures. It is just not like this. It feels hard because it is hard. And if people here, if you don't have friends or a community where people will say that to you, yeah, this isn't a you thing. This is just a show for everybody. We need that. And then I would say like, I'm not in skill building mode right now. I know I'm going to get there. I'm just not. And that's okay. I'm a good parent who's surviving these months. I'm a good parent with three young kids. I'm a good parent who feels overwhelmed. Where do I hope we get to next? My big hope with everything and good inside is we help parents go from what is wrong with me to what resources and support do I deserve and how can I get them? So I think the other thing is that question. When you're up at night and you finally have like 30 seconds between when your kid goes to bed and you pass out, you know, that you say to yourself, hi, what is wrong with me thoughts? That's that legacy of self-blame that worked for me early on when I was alone, right? There's something to say to our old patterns, like, really, thank you for your years of service. You have served me when I didn't have anyone. You actually helped me get through. 
hard years. Our patterns all actually need respect and gratitude before they're willing to release all of them. And we usually give them the opposite. So get ready for that. And then I think the question after is, are there resources and support out there when I'm having these three young kids, when I'm having a kid who's having these massive meltdowns and I feel overwhelmed that, that I, that I need, right? If we think about like a surgeon, if a surgeon you were going to was like, Hey, I did this extra training and I'm in this support group with other surgeons. I don't know anyone who'd be like, Oh, what kind of, like, I don't want to go to that surgeon. You'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I want to go to you because you're getting the most training and resources and support. Would you ever go to a surgeon who's like, I get my tips on Instagram. <laughs> You'd be like, that's all. They're like, yeah, like here and there. And I'm figuring it out. We'd be like, like, it's like the opposite message. We think people in important jobs, except for parenting who invest in themselves and get support. We, we give them like adulation. And I think it's time to like really shift that narrative to us. And to say, like, I, I, there are resources out there. And it might, the resource might be texting a friend and just saying, please tell me that it gets easier, you know? Please literally tell me nothing but that. Please tell me that this really is hard because it, you know, it just is that way. That's something, right? It doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be a membership. It could be a text, right? Or it could, it could be something bigger depending on what we need. And so I think that shift is huge. And I think when parents make that shift, when a whole generation of women make the shift from what's wrong with me to what do I need and what do I deserve, I promise you a lot more is going to change in the world than parenting. That is right. So let's end on that note. Thank you for being here, really. And as you walk out, just like you all had to do something to get here. You did. Store that. And you could have, if you carved out time, been doing something else. Like, it's brave to learn and consider new ideas. So as you walk out, like, just connect with your body. Like, really tell yourself, this mattered. I did something really big. And really give yourself credit. Take the time to do that. Because that practice is really, really important. So you're all, seriously, you're all amazing. Thank you for spending this time here. And let's, let's go change things together. <laughs> Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was child psychologist Dr. Becky Kennedy, whose new book is Good Inside. She was joined in conversation by Katie Hintz-Sombrano, founder and editor of Mother Mag. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.